Section 14 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bloomfield. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards, Section 14. The Importance and Advantage of a Thorough Knowledge of Divine Truth. Part 1. Hebrews 5, verse 12. For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. These words are a complaint, which the Apostle makes of a certain defect in the Christian Hebrews to whom he wrote, wherein we may observe, 1. What the defect complained of is, vis-a-vis -vis a want of such a proficiency in the knowledge of the doctrines and mysteries of religion as might have been expected of them, the Apostle complains of them that they had not made that progress in their acquaintance with the things of divinity, or things taught in the oracles of God, which they ought to have made. And he means to reprove them not merely for their deficiency in spiritual and experimental knowledge of divine things, but for their deficiency in a doctrinal acquaintance with the principles of religion, and the truths of Christian divinity, as is evident by several things. It appears by the manner in which the Apostle introduces this complaint or reproof. The occasion of his introducing it is this. In the next verse but one preceding, he mentions Christ's being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Quote, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Close quote. This Melchizedek being in the Old Testament, which was the oracles of God, held forth as an eminent type of Christ, and the account we there have of Melchizedek containing many gospel mysteries. These the apostle was willing to point out to the Christian Hebrews. But he apprehended that through their weakness in knowledge and little acquaintance in mysteries of that nature, they would not understand him, and therefore breaks off for the present from saying anything about Melchizedek. Thus, in verse 11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing, i.e. there are many things concerning Melchizedek which contain wonderful gospel mysteries, and which I would take notice of to you were it not that I am afraid that through your dullness and backwardness in understanding these things, you would only be puzzled and confounded by my discourse, and so receive no benefit, and that it would be too hard for you, as meat that is too strong. Then come in the words of the text, For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. As much as to say, indeed, it might have been expected of you, that you should have known enough of divinity and the holy scriptures to be able to understand and digest such mysteries, but it is not so with you. Again, the apostle speaks of their proficiency in such knowledge as is conveyed and received by human teaching, as appears by that expression, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, which includes not only a practical and experimental, but also a doctrinal knowledge of the truths and mysteries of religion. Again, the Apostle speaks of such a knowledge whereby Christians are enabled to digest strong meat, i.e. to understand those things in divinity which are more abstruse and difficult to be understood, and which require great skill in things of this nature. This is more fully expressed in the next two verses. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
Again, it is such knowledge that proficiency in it shall carry persons beyond the first principles of religion. As here, you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Therefore the apostle, in the beginning of the next chapter, advises them to leave the first principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on unto perfection. 2. We may observe wherein the fault of this defect appears, vis-à-vis -vis in that they had not made proficiency according to their time. For the time they ought to have been teachers. As they were Christians, their business was to learn and gain Christian knowledge. They were scholars in the school of Christ, and if they had improved their time in learning, as they ought to have done, they might, by the time when the apostle wrote, have been fit to be teachers in this school. To whatever business any one is devoted, it may be expected that his perfection in it shall be answerable to the time he has had to learn and perfect himself. Christians should not always remain babes, but should grow in Christian knowledge, and, leaving the food of babes, which is milk, should learn to digest strong meat. Doctrine. Every Christian should make a business of endeavouring to grow in knowledge in divinity. This is indeed esteemed the business of divines and ministers. It is commonly thought to be their work by the study of the scriptures and other instructive books to gain knowledge, and most seem to think that it may be left to them as what belongeth not to others. But if the apostle had entertained this notion, he would never have blamed the Christian Hebrews for not having acquired knowledge enough to be teachers, or if he had thought that this concerned Christians in general only as a thing by and by, and that their time should not, in a considerable measure, be taken up with this business, he never would have so much blamed them that their proficiency in knowledge had not been answerable to the time which they had had to learn. In handling this subject, I shall show 1. What divinity is. 2. What kind of knowledge in divinity is intended. 3. Why knowledge in divinity is necessary. 4. Why all Christians should make a business of endeavouring to grow in this knowledge. First, I shall show very briefly what divinity is. Various definitions have been given of it by those who have treated on the subject. I shall not now stand to inquire which, according to the rules of art, is the most accurate definition, but shall so define or describe it as I think has the greatest tendency to convey a notion of it to this auditory. By divinity is meant that science or doctrine which comprehends all those truths and rules which concern the great business of religion. There are various kinds of arts and sciences taught and learned in the schools, which are conversant about various subjects, about the works of nature in general as philosophy, or the visible heavens as astronomy, or the sea as navigation, or the earth as geography, or the body of man as physic and anatomy, or the soul of man with regard to its natural powers and qualities as logic and pneumatology, or about human government as politics and jurisprudence. But there is one science, or one certain kind of knowledge and doctrine, which is above all the rest, as it is concerning God and the great business of religion. This is divinity, which is not learned as other sciences merely by the improvement of man's natural reason, but is taught by God himself in a certain book that he hath given for that end, full of instruction. This is the rule which God hath given to the world to be their guide, in searching after this kind of knowledge, and is a summary of all things of this nature needful for us to know. Upon this account, divinity is rather called a doctrine than an art or a science.
Indeed, there is what is called natural religion or divinity. There are many truths concerning God and our duty to him, which are evident by the light of nature. But Christian divinity, properly so called, is not evident by the light of nature. It depends on revelation. Such are our circumstances now in our fallen state, that nothing which it is needful for us to know concerning God is manifest by the light of nature in the manner in which it is necessary for us to know it. For the knowledge of no truth in divinity is of any significance to us, any otherwise than as it some way or other belongs to the gospel scheme, or as it relates to a mediator. But the light of nature teaches us no truth of divinity in this matter. Therefore it cannot be said that we come to the knowledge of any part of Christian divinity by the light of nature. The light of nature teaches no truth as it is in Jesus. It is only the word of God contained in the Old and New Testament which teaches us Christian divinity. Divinity comprehends all that is taught in the scriptures, and so all that we need to know, or is to be known, concerning God and Jesus Christ, concerning our duty to God, and our happiness in God. Divinity is commonly defined the doctrine of living to God, and by some who seem to be more accurate, the doctrine of living to God by Christ. It comprehends all Christian doctrines as they are in Jesus, and all Christian rules directing us in living to God by Christ. There is nothing in divinity, no one doctrine, no promise, no rule, but what some way or other relates to the Christian and divine life, or our living to God by Christ. They all relate to this in two respects, vis-a-vis -vis as they tend to promote our living to God here in this world in a life of faith and holiness, and also as they tend to bring us to a life of perfect holiness and happiness in the full enjoyment of God hereafter. But I hasten to the second thing proposed, vis-a-vis -vis, to show what kind of knowledge in divinity is intended in the doctrine. Here I would observe, 1. That there are two kinds of knowledge in the things of divinity, vis-a-vis -vis, speculative and practical, or in other terms natural and spiritual. The former remains only in the head, no other faculty but the understanding is concerned in it. It consists in having a natural or rational knowledge of the things of religion, or such a knowledge as is to be obtained by the natural exercise of our own faculties, without any special illumination of the Spirit of God. The latter rests not entirely in the head or in the speculative ideas of things, but the heart is concerned in it. It principally consists in the sense of the heart. The mere intellect without the heart, the will, or the inclination is not the seat of it. And it may not only be called seeing, but feeling or tasting. Thus there is a difference between having a right speculative notion of the doctrines contained in the word of God, and having a due sense of them in the heart. In the former consists speculative or natural knowledge of the things of divinity, in the latter consists the spiritual or practical knowledge of them. 2. Neither of these is intended in the doctrine exclusively of the other, but it is intended that we should seek the former in order to the latter. The latter, even a spiritual and practical knowledge of divinity, is of the greatest importance, for a speculative knowledge of it, without spiritual knowledge, is in vain and to no purpose, but to make our condemnation the greater. Yet speculative knowledge is also of infinite importance in this respect, that without it we can have no spiritual or practical knowledge, as may be shown by and by. I have already shown that the Apostle speaks not only of a spiritual knowledge, but of such knowledge as can be acquired and communicated from one to another. Yet it is not to be thought that he means this exclusively of the other, but he would have the Christian Hebrews seek the one in order to the other. Therefore the former is first and most directly intended, 
It's intended that Christians should, by reading and other proper means, seek a good rational knowledge of the things of divinity. The latter is more indirectly intended, since it is to be sought by the other as its end. But I proceed to the third thing proposed, vis-à-vis -vis to show the usefulness and necessity of knowledge in divinity. 1. There is no other way by which any means of grace whatsoever can be of any benefit but by knowledge. All teaching is in vain without learning. Therefore, the preaching of the gospel would be wholly to no purpose if it conveyed no knowledge to the mind. There is an order of men whom Christ has appointed on purpose to be teachers in his church. They are to teach the things of divinity, but they teach in vain if no knowledge in these things is gained by their teaching. It is impossible that their teaching and preaching should be a means of grace, or of any good in the hearts of their hearers, any otherwise than by knowledge imparted to the understanding. Otherwise it would be of as much benefit to the auditory if the minister should preach in some unknown tongue. All the difference is that preaching in a known tongue conveys something to the understanding, which preaching in an unknown tongue doth not. On this account such preaching must be unprofitable. Men in such things receive nothing when they understand nothing, and are not at all edified, unless some knowledge be conveyed, agreeably to the Apostles' arguing in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2-6. to 6. No speech can be any means of grace but by conveying knowledge, otherwise the speech is as much lost as if there had been no man there, and he that spoke had spoken only into the air, as it follows in the passage just quoted, verses 6-10. to 10. He that doth not understand can receive no faith nor any other grace, for God deals with man as with a rational creature, and when faith is in exercise it is not about something he knows not what. Therefore hearing is absolutely necessary to faith, because hearing is necessary to understanding. Romans 10 verse 14, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So there can be no love without knowledge. It is not according to the nature of the human soul to love an object which is entirely unknown. The heart cannot be set upon an object of which there is no idea in the understanding. The reasons which induce the soul to love must first be understood, before they can have a reasonable influence on the heart. God hath given us the Bible, which is a book of instructions, but this book can be of no manner of profit to us any otherwise than as it conveys some knowledge to the mind. It can profit us no more than if it were written in the Chinese or Tartarian language, of which we know not one word. So the sacraments of the gospel can have a proper effect no other way than by conveying some knowledge. They represent certain things by visible signs, and what is the end of signs but to convey some knowledge of the things signified? Such is the nature of man, that nothing can come at the heart, but through the door of the understanding, and there can be no spiritual knowledge of that of which there is not first a rational knowledge. It is impossible that anyone should see the truth or excellency of any doctrine of the gospel who knows not what that doctrine is. A man cannot see the wonderful excellency and love of Christ in doing such and such things for sinners unless his understanding be first informed how those things were done. He cannot have a taste of the sweetness and divine excellency of such and such things contained in divinity unless he first have a notion that there are such and such things. 2. Without knowledge in divinity, none would differ from the most ignorant and barbarous heathens. The heathens remain in gross heathenish darkness because they are not instructed and have not obtained the knowledge of the truths of divinity.
So if we live under the preaching of the gospel, this will make us to differ from them, only by conveying to us more knowledge of the things of divinity. 3. If a man have no knowledge of these things, the faculty of reason in him will be wholly in vain. The faculty of reason and understanding was given for actual understanding and knowledge. If a man have no actual knowledge, the faculty or capacity of knowing is of no use to him. And if he have actual knowledge, yet if he be destitute of the knowledge of those things which are the last end of his being, and for the sake of the knowledge of which he had more understanding given him than the beasts, then still this faculty of reason is in vain. He might as well have been a beast as a man with this knowledge. But the things of divinity are the things to know which we had the faculty of reason given us. They are the things which appertain to the end of our being, and to the great business for which we are made. Therefore a man cannot have his faculty of understanding to any purpose any further than he hath knowledge of the things of divinity. So that this kind of knowledge is absolutely necessary. Other kinds of knowledge may be very useful. Some other sciences, such as astronomy and natural philosophy and geography, may be very excellent in their kind. But the knowledge of this divine science is infinitely more useful and important than of all other sciences, whatever. I come now to the fourth and principal thing proposed under the doctrine, vis-à-vis -vis to give the reasons why all Christians should make a business of endeavouring to grow in the knowledge of divinity. This implies two things. 1. That Christians ought not to content themselves with such degrees of knowledge in divinity as they have already obtained. It should not satisfy them that they know as much as is absolutely necessary to salvation, but should seek to make progress. 2. That this endeavouring to make progress in such knowledge ought not to be attended to as a thing by the by, but all Christians should make a business of it. They should look upon it as part of their daily business, and no small part of it neither. It should be attended to as a considerable part of the work of their high calling. The reason of both these may appear in the following things. First, our business should doubtless much consist in employing those faculties by which we are distinguished from the beasts, about those things which are the main end of those faculties. The reason why we have faculties superior to those of the brutes given us is that we are indeed designed for a superior employment. That which the Creator intended should be our main employment is something above what he intended the beasts for, and therefore hath given us superior powers. Therefore, without doubt, it should be a considerable part of our business to improve those superior faculties. But the faculty by which we are chiefly distinguished from the brutes is the faculty of understanding. It follows, then, that we should make it our chief business to improve this faculty, and should by no means prosecute it as a business by the by. For us to make improvement of this faculty as a business by the by is in effect for us to make the faculty of understanding itself a by faculty if I may so speak, a faculty of less importance than the others, whereas indeed it is the highest faculty we have. But we cannot make a business of the improvement of our intellectual faculty any otherwise than by making a business of improving ourselves in actual understanding and knowledge, so that those who make not this very much their business, but instead of improving their understanding to acquire knowledge, are chiefly devoted to their inferior powers, to provide wherewithal to please their senses and gratify their animal appetites, and so rather make their understanding a servant to their inferior powers than their inferior powers a servant to their understanding, not only behave themselves in a manner not becoming Christians, but also act as if they had forgotten that they are men, and that God hath set them above the brutes by giving them understanding. 
God hath given to man some things in common with the brutes, as his outward senses, his bodily appetites, a capacity of bodily pleasure and pain, and other animal faculties. And some things he hath given him superior to the brutes, the chief of which is a faculty of understanding and reason. Now God never gave man those faculties whereby he is above the brutes, to be subject to those which he hath in common with the brutes. This would be great confusion, and equivalent to making man to be a servant to the beasts. On the contrary, he has given those inferior powers to be employed in subserviency to man's understanding. And therefore it must be a great part of man's principal business to improve his understanding by acquiring knowledge. If so, then it will follow that it should be a main part of his business to improve his understanding in acquiring divine knowledge, or the knowledge of the things of divinity. For the knowledge of these things is the principal end of this faculty. God gave man the faculty of understanding, chiefly that he might understand divine things. The wiser heathens were sensible that the main business of man was the improvement and exercise of his understanding. But they were in the dark, as they knew not the object about which the understanding should chiefly be employed. That science which many of them thought should chiefly employ the understanding was philosophy, and accordingly they made it their chief business to study it. But we who enjoy the light of the gospel are more happy, we are not left, as to this particular, in the dark. God hath told us about what things we should chiefly employ our understandings, having given us a book full of divine instructions, holding forth many glorious objects about which all rational creatures should chiefly employ their understandings. These instructions are accommodated to persons of all capacities and conditions, and proper to be studied not only by men of learning, but by persons of every character, learned and unlearned, young and old, men and women. Therefore the acquisition of knowledge in these things should be a main business of all those who have the advantage of enjoying the Holy Scriptures. Second, the things of divinity are things of superlative excellency, and are worthy that all should make a business of endeavouring to grow in the knowledge of them. There are no things so worthy to be known as these things. They are as much above those things which are treated of in other sciences as heaven is above the earth. God himself, the eternal three in one, is the chief object of this science. In the next place, Jesus Christ as God-man and mediator, and the glorious work of redemption, the most glorious work that ever was wrought. Then the things of the heavenly world, the glorious and eternal inheritance purchased by Christ and promised in the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit of God on the hearts of men, our duty to God and the way in which we ourselves may become like angels and like God himself in our measure, all these are objects of this science. Such things as these have been the main subject of the study of the holy patriarchs, prophets and apostles, and the most excellent men that ever were in the world, and are also the subject of the study of the angels in heaven. 1 Peter 1, verses 10, 11 and 12. These things are so excellent and worthy to be known that the knowledge of them will richly pay for all the pains and labour of an earnest seeking of it. If there were a great treasure of gold and pearls hid in the earth, but should accidentally be found, and should be opened among us with such circumstances that all might have as much as they could gather of it, would not everyone think it worth his while to make a business of gathering it while it should last? But that treasure of divine knowledge which is contained in the scriptures, and is provided for everyone to gather to himself as much of it as he can, is a far more rich treasure than any one of gold and pearls. How busy are all sorts of men all over the world in getting riches! But this knowledge is a far better kind of riches, 
than that after which they so diligently and laboriously pursue. 3. The things of divinity not only concern ministers, but are of infinite importance to all Christians. It is not with the doctrines of divinity as it is with the doctrines of philosophy and other sciences. These last are generally speculative points, which are of little concern in human life, and it very little alters the case as to our temporal or spiritual interests, whether we know them or not. Philosophers differ about them, some being of one opinion and others of another. And while they are engaged in warm disputes about them, others may well leave them to dispute among themselves without troubling their heads much about them, it being of little concern to them whether the one or the other be in the right. But it is not thus in matters of divinity. The doctrines this nearly concern every one. They are about those things which relate to every man's eternal salvation and happiness. The common people cannot say, let us leave these matters to ministers and divines, let them dispute them out among themselves as they can, they concern not us. For they are of infinite importance to every man. Those doctrines of divinity which relate to the essence, attributes, and subsistences of God concern all, as it is of infinite importance to common people, as well as to ministers, to know what kind of being God is. For he is the being who hath made us all, in whom we live and move and have our being, who is the Lord of all, the being to whom we are all accountable, is the last end of our being, and the only fountain of our happiness. End of section 14. Recording by Peter Bloomfield of Paisley, Scotland.